0: Church, if you want to leave your Bibles open, there's an outline there with plenty of space to take some notes in it. But I want us to think this morning as we come along and think about this passage about identity. I don't know if you've ever mistaken someone's identity before. I've been the perpetrator of that uh, this week. Uh, Someone told me about a holiday house that someone they knew had, and they told me their name, and so I think that's their number. So I gave them a call. I'm talking to them on the phone. Uh, This person had no idea about any holiday house at all. I'd gotten the wrong number, or their name was the same. And it's just this awkward moment where I'm like, okay, I guess you don't have a house, and you don't want to rent it out. And they're like, no, we don't. I'm like, okay. You just kind of, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? But sometimes when you mistake someone's identity, it can be more than awkward. I heard a story of three young punks back in the 1930s in Detroit who were sitting on a bus. And they like to be a bit of a larrikin, a bit of hassling people around. And when they got on this bus, they noticed a guy kind of hunched down at the back of the bus with a hat covering his head. And they thought, oh, they'd start calling out some names. He's wearing a weird hat. And so they start hassling him from the bus and start throwing more insults at him, heckling him, making fun of all the things that were were about him. Anyway, this went on for a while and the guy didn't respond. Just sat there, totally ignored them. And they thought oh well we'll keep doing it so they kept insulting him kept making fun of him until the bus stopped and he stood up that was the moment they realized he was taller than they originally thought like a lot taller also a lot wider and bulkier and he kind of walked down the aisle of the bus kind of one step at a time and they're looking back silent and he stopped at them he pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket gave it to them and then got off the bus They kind of sat there thinking, oh, what just happened? They looked at the piece of paper and it was a business card. And on it, it said, Joe Lewis, boxer. (laughs) Now, if you don't know your boxing history, Joe Lewis went on to become the heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. In fact, the International Boxing Research Organization places him as the number one boxer of all time ahead of Muhammad Ali. There are times in life when mistaking someone's identity can have catastrophic consequences, can't it? Well the passage that we just had read for us earlier is one of the most important pieces in in history that our world could ever hear because it has at its heart the identity of the most important person. It reveals the identity of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Popular opinion places Jesus anywhere from the most important person in human history through to a totally irrelevant some fairy tale myth that people have made up. But the claim of this part of human history is that Jesus' identity matters. It matters for you and it matters for me. Getting his identity right profoundly impacts the way that you and I think. It profoundly impacts our future. And we're going to see it's a matter of life and death. Now, I don't know where you are today on the spectrum of indifferent to convinced on who Jesus is and what he's done, whether he's a myth or really, he really is God. I don't know where you sit on that spectrum. But a large proportion of people that I speak to are happy to write off Jesus as irrelevant Without, without even checking him out. I want to do a little hypothetical situation for you. Let's say someone you trusted came up to you and said, look, um, I've been watching the races at Auckland uh, each week and I'm convinced that this horse that's coming up this Saturday's races is going to win. C- convinced. I've been researching. I know. I- I'm convinced on it. The odds are 20 to 1. What I need you to do is give me $1,000 now and I'll come back with 20 grand on Sunday. Now, at that point, I want to ask, would you, without checking out that horse... Uh, without thinking about whether betting on horses is wrong or right, just pause that for a minute, would you go to the teller down the road and pull out $1,000 right now? Most people I speak to uh, say no. Uh, one, one time someone did come to me and say, yes, I would, and gave me $1,000, but it was a was 1,000 kind of Thai barts, which is not much at all. Uh, and they're like, you, you can keep the note for later on. So, see, we, we wouldn't bet a $1,000 on a horse we've never checked out. But so many people bet their lives that Jesus isn't God. And they've never looked at the evidence. And so what's important for us to do this morning is to come and look at this evidence that's in front of us. To see who Jesus is. Because the book of Mark claims to be a first-hand account of the life of Jesus. It's been received as the authority of account of these events from the early church up until today. Even as you look at ancient history professors, they see this as one of the best windows into the first century to understand its culture and context. And it lines up with a whole heap of other events from other non-Christian sources, people at the time like Josephus and Tacitus, who wrote from a secular point of view about the life of Jesus. For all intents and purposes, it's probably the best look you can get at Jesus without being there. In fact, I would put it to you, it's an even better look than if you were just there, because you're hearing it through the eyes of Jesus' closest followers. The first eight chapters of the book of Mark have been providing the evidence to back up the first line. Do you remember the first line of the book of Mark? It says this, it's on the screen. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From its very opening, the book is about the identity of Jesus. The claim that he is the Christ, the King. And for the next eight chapters, we've seen, as we've been working through as a church, event after event that that shows that claim. He speaks and a man's leprosy is, is, is healed. He heals a paralytic with his voice. He stands and tells a storm to be still and it happens. He brings a little girl back to life by asking her to get up. He, he, he brings in God's kingdom and offers forgiveness to all. Now if I came along today and said to you, hey everyone, I am God's king. I'm, I'm God's king here today. My name is Rowan and I'm the king. Right? you have every right to look at me and laugh and okay, go, Rowan, you're an idiot. You're not a king. Maybe you're an idiot king, but you're king of your own little world because you're crazy. right? You, you would not think that I'm king, and I'm telling you, I'm not. But, but then if I said to a friend you know who'd been paralytic their whole life, I'll get up and walk, and they did. I said to the wind and the waves, stop, and they did. you start to think, whoa, there's something different about Rowan. Now, I can't do any of that, but Jesus did. And so it's worthwhile thinking through the question the passage brings up for today. Who do you think Jesus is? I mean, really. Not just intellectually. Who is Jesus to you? Who was he? What has he done? Well, as we get to this part of the Bible, Jesus asks his friends that exact question. Look, look with me at verse 27 of chapter 8. Who do people say that I am, Jesus asks. They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. So the question of Jesus' identity was as big an issue then as it is today. However, their views were a little bit closer than ours are today. We think myth, or we think just moral leader. We don't generally think, oh, he's John the Baptist, or Elijah, or one of the prophets. Some do. But their misunderstandings were based on expectations that had happened through the Jewish scriptures. The Old Testament had been speaking of a series of figures who would mark the end of time, God's judgment in the world. John the Baptist had just been beheaded a few chapters earlier, and some thought he'd been kind of some sort of reincarnation in Jesus as the type of figure that the Old Testament spoke of. Others thought he would be the Elijah figure. Now, in Kings, Elijah was a prophet who had reported to have not died. He'd been taken straight to heaven and walked with God. And Malachi, one of the later prophets in, in, in the Old Testament, speaks of a time that an Elijah figure would, would come as a forerunner to God's judgment day, a promise of one like this. Have a look. Malachi 4 verse 5. God says, Look, I'm going to send to you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So they're going, Jesus is this one. He's the one who's come. There was another promise about prophets in Deuteronomy 18, way back um, in, in the early part of the Bible. Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. They're going, maybe it's this prophet who's coming. There are other promises of of one who would come. And Psalm 2 is worth looking at here as well, uh, written long, long before Jesus. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Now that word there, anointed one, uh, literally means Christ or Messiah. Kings were traditionally anointed with oil to show that they would be the, the rulers of the time, a kind of coronation. That happened to Queen Elizabeth when she came in as queen. She got anointed with oil. We just haven't seen it for a while. But the title Christ or Messiah had traditionally come to mean the promised one who would come. And so here in Psalm 2, there's this picture of people against God's king, his anointed one. Look at verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. He speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. There was a picture in Psalm 2 of the Son of God who would come and be the king over all kings. He'd bring in judgment. He'd show the nations around that he is the true king. And so at this point in time, there's all this expectation around figures who would come, a figure who would come. The New Testament views of Jesus did not come in a vacuum. It's not like they sat down one day and scratched their heads and went, oh, let's just make this thing up. And there's all this Old Testament kind of prophecy pointing forward to, of God saying what he would do. But Jesus isn't too concerned at this point with everyone else's opinion of him. He's concerned with those that he's speaking to. They're his disciples, and today, you and me. You get to hear Jesus' voice asking you this question. Verse 29. But you, he asked them, who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. Messiah. After eight chapters, we see the first person in human history who really gets Jesus' identity right. Peter says what Psalm 2 was talking about, the promise of the one who would come, the promised king, the anointed one, it's you. You've come to to rule God's people, the king of all kings, the king over all the nations. And you remember those words we read from Psalm 2. He, He will come to the earth. He will make the nations, God will make the nations his inheritance, the end of the earth, his possession. He's coming with Judgment with wrath. There's a sense of when this king, com- this king comes, he'll, he'll put things right. And Peter says, You're the king. You are the one, the anointed one, the promised king who will put all things right. But this king is a little different from what they might have expected. You see, Peter, he picks the king, but he doesn't understand what this kingship would look like, he doesn't understand how this king would rule the nations. Like so many of us, he comes to Jesus in the flesh with his own picture of what Jesus is. With his own view. I think Jesus is this. To me, Jesus is a good moral teacher. To me, Jesus is this king who will come and smash the other nations. So Jesus moves at this point from who he is to why he's come. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. Now that's not your normal type of king, is it? Oh, I've come to die. I've come to be rejected. I've come to lay down my life. Most kings send all their troops and armies out in front of them and say, you die, not me. But here is a king who's come to lay down his life. Now, there was also a whole heap of Old Testament prophecy that pointed to one who would come and suffer in their place. And people hadn't connected the two, the, the suffering servant idea of Isaiah 43, 44, 53 with the promised king. But here, Jesus is saying that he has come to defeat evil and injustice by dying. Now, it seems ridiculous. like you're not, If you're Peter, you're not looking for that type of king. You're not thinking that at this point in time. But Jesus here is crystal clear before his death happens he says it must happen he must suffer he must be killed and he will rise three days later this is not some mistake jesus death on the cross wasn't an experiment by god that went wrong it was god's plan from the beginning it was jesus plan from the beginning jesus came to die now it's worth thinking on that if he is the king of the universe he's the one who made all things How amazing is it that he would come and die in our place? Well, Peter, Peter can't believe it. And I love the way here Peter is kind of um, shown his stupidity again. uh, Again, Mark was probably a a friend of Peter's, and Mark's recording what Peter had done. And we hear the way Peter responds. he'd grown up from his mother's knee, probably, saying that the, the Messiah would come, he'd defeat evil, injustice would come to an end. He meets him. He's convinced Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ. But then he says, I've come to die. That's really odd. I didn't come to take power, but to lose it. I didn't come to rule, but to serve. And that's how I'm going to put everything right. You see, Jesus has stepped into the world to show he's a very different type of king. It says it again in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what? Why do we need Jesus to die? Why did Jesus need to die? Well, because each one of us has turned our backs on God, and if God's going to forgive us, if He's going to put us back in right relationship uh, with Him, someone needs to take the penalty for what we've done. Death is just horrible. Death is what we deserve, though, because we've said to God who gives us life, I don't want you in my life. Sometimes people in the world kind of say that death's just natural. It's just part of what we should experience. Just in the last two weeks, my grandfather in Australia died, which is really sad. Sad that I couldn't be there. Sad I couldn't be there to comfort my family. Sad I couldn't be there to tell him more of the news of Jesus. But as many people say that death is natural, you go through it and you're like, it is not. It is not the way the world is supposed to be the Bible explains that death is the result of rejecting the God who gives life. Let me say it again. Death is the result of rejecting the God who gives life. If God is the one who gives life, and we say, look, no offense, but I want nothing to do with you, then we're actually asking him to remove what he gives us. And that's life itself. It's it's, it's a logical outcome for those that want nothing to do with the life-giving God. And that is all of us. You and me. Everyone dies. That shows everyone rejects God, Paul says in Romans. But like those kids on the bus, when we provoke God, when we make fun of Him, when we don't give Him the honor that we deserve, we recognize that we haven't treated Him as we ought. But Jesus is saying, He's come to buy us back. He came as a substitute, to die in our place, to face what we rightly deserve so we could get what He rightly deserves. He's a king like no other. But all that explanation, Peter can't handle. Peter's like, Nah, this doesn't fit within his view of who God would be, or what Jesus would be like, or what this king could be. It doesn't fit into his expectation of a king. He recognizes that Jesus is God's appointed king, but then he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Yes, you're the king of the universe who's come to, to rule the world, and, but let me tell you how you should do this. You shouldn't do this die thing, that's bad. All right, you're like, Peter, you're an idiot. <laughs> you just said he was the king. Shut up and listen. How often do you find yourself saying to God, oh, I wouldn't do it that way, God. Do it this way. Oh, if I was God, I'd do this differently. The answer for us is, shut up and listen. Shut up and see who this king is. Jesus looks him in the eye, verse 33. Turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. The temptation right here at this moment is Satan, through Peter, saying, yes, be the king that Peter wants. Rule the world. Be the one that everyone looks to and says, yes, Jesus, you're this powerful king that smashes all the nations and brings your judgment on all right here, right now. Don't die on the cross. Lead the world. Rule the world this way. But Jesus knows that's not the plan of his father nor him. He's come to die in our place. He has to die to win. So the temptation to fit Jesus into our own ideas and domesticate him or tone him down, it's not unique to Peter, is it? Jesus is clear. We view him on his terms or on no terms at all. When we play God rather than follow him, it becomes satanic. See that? To deny Jesus had to die is to deny Jesus himself. But so often that's exactly what so many of us do. When we view Jesus as a life coach, you didn't need to die for my sin, Jesus. You didn't need to die on the cross. You just need to help me have 10 steps to living a better life, to being a better father or mother. You didn't need to die. You just need to point out what it is to live a moral life. That would have been enough. Or, well, Jesus, I think you're just like one of those genies in a bottle where I can pray to you and you can maybe bring about some miracles. a Hail Mary moment at that last second. That's what I really need, Jesus. That's what I want from you, Jesus. Jesus says, no, 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 unless you get that I come to die, unless you get you needed me, the king of the universe, to die in your place, you've missed the position you were in as someone who's turned their back on God, and you've missed who I am. Oh, I am the king, but I've come to lay down my life. He's come to lay down his life for you and for me. And so I want to put it to you that there has never been nor ever will be such a great king as Jesus. Well, after clearing up his kingship, Jesus calls in the crowd and he wants them to know what it looks like to treat Jesus as your king. And it's the shift in the whole book of Mark from who Jesus is, he's the promised king, to what he's come to do. He's come to die and how we live in response to that. Look at verse 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What Jesus is saying we ought to do is to join him in his rejection and death. To make Jesus your king is to say, I'm going to put him as the number one in my life. I'm going to follow his footsteps. Now, what does it mean to deny yourself? Now, if I deny myself ice cream, uh, then I'm not eating ice cream. Right? That's something I've never done. Right? never really denied myself ice cream. Maybe I've denied the third helping of ice cream occasionally, but I, I feel like I have a whole new ice cream stomach. Uh, Even when I'm full, someone's like, I want ice cream, I'm there. I don't know. It's just great. Um, I don't really like sugary things, but there's not much sugar in ice cream, so I should be fine, right? Yeah, you can fix me on that later. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it means denying yourself. Saying no to yourself. What is that? Well, it's saying no to being the king. To deny ourselves is to say, look, I want to call the shots. I want to work out what is right and what isn't right. I want to work out what I do with my life and what my moral code is. Well, that, That's to put myself in the position of king of my life. If you want to actually trust the true king, the one who made you, it's saying, no, no, he needs to be in that position. You need to say no to yourself as king, and yes to him as the true king. Because when you treat Jesus as the king, it changes everything. If he is the king of the universe, the promised king, then you or I can't be. If he is my king and yours, then you or I can't be the ruler of our lives. What we need to do, says Jesus, is to take up our cross and follow him. Take up your cross and follow him. Now, what is that concept? Well, crucifixion in the first century was pretty common in the ancient world. It's this horrible and barbaric way of of executing people um, where they would basically... um, Pin you to a cross, and you'd suffocate by your own weight, not being able to hold yourself up. But it was really a political statement. You rebel against the authorities that exist, will pin you to a cross and say, that's what happens. It's a symbol for everyone who walks past. This is what happens when you rebel against uh, against the authority. And as as. Criminals carried the cross piece, the bar, to their execution. They would walk through the streets with people around, jeering them, making fun of them, saying, ha, you thought you could do whatever you wanted to. Look what happens now. Justice has come to you. And you'd walk to your death, where you'd be pinned to a cross as a public spectacle for the whole world to see. Jesus takes this image and says, if you put me as your king, you become the spectacle. The whole world will hassle you and point at you and say, ha, you think you are living for a different king, but if you follow me, you're living for the true king. If you really want to put me first, you need to be willing to take the suffering and the consequences and the pain of, of being one of those who was declared for crucifixion. It's this big image of rejection. Why is that? Because the world around us wants to believe that there is no God, that we are the masters of our own destinies, that we choose what's right and wrong. And if you go against them, ah. Oh, well, hell breaks loose. You can't, you can't live differently to the world around you. You can't say there's someone who's greater than me. My opinion is my opinion and I am the boss of my opinion and you, I, I just sit with it. You can't change that. But our claim is that there is one above all who made us and who's in control of us. And rejecting the world's view of king, the world's view that we can be king, will mean that we face suffering, persecution. Will mean that people will look at us and go, oh, you're an idiot. They'll say, I can't believe you worship a God who died. I can't believe you think Jesus really rose from the dead. And I get that all the time. But Jesus says, you have to, if you've really seen who I am, and you'll recognize, of course, the world will hate you. If it hated me, it's going to hate you. What does following Jesus look like? Verse 34 and 35, he explains that following Jesus looks like losing your life for his sake and the news of who he is and what he's done. It requires nothing less than total um, commitment of your life that he is Lord and Christ and King. His death and resurrection, his rising from the dead, they show us who he is. At this point in time, they hadn't seen it, the disciples, but we get to see it today. The question is, will you live that way in response to who Jesus is? If he is the Lord then we ought to follow him with our lives. But if he isn't, if he's not God's promised king, if he's not come to do what those Old Testament expectations show, then you wouldn't live for him. You wouldn't give your life for him. But those who knew him did give their lives for him. They were convinced he was the king, that he was that promised king of Psalm chapter 2, that every part of the universe would be under his rule. And they saw the right response was to recognize that we need to give our all to Jesus, to, to sign the blank check of our lives to him pretty full on call. That's what Jesus requires of us. If you want to be his follower, he says, you need to make him the king. Look at verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Hanging on to your life, trying to be king yourself, saying, no, I want to do what I want to do, holding on to the controls, remaining in the driver's seat, all those illustrations. Jesus says, we'll end in losing your life. Just two weeks ago, Jesus showed what our hearts were like. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils, Jesus said, come from within, out of a person's heart. Our hearts are hardwired for rebellion. That's what we're like. Uh, Let let me ask you a question right now. I'm going to show of hands, and you've got to be truthful, okay? Um, It's not too deep. Um, I'm going to ask you a question about this moment now, okay? That moment just there. In that moment now, who was thinking that they did not want to look at the back wall? Anyone? Show of hands. Anyone was thinking when I said now previously, don't want to look at the back wall? A couple of people, maybe. They were thinking that that was exactly it. Now, watch this. No one look at the back wall. Put your hand up if you want to look at the back wall right now. Look at you, you rebellious people. (laughs) Our hearts just want to rebel. I see a wet paint sign. I want to touch it. I saw one this week. And and I looked at it. uh, And I was with Brian. Went to hospital to visit someone. And um, I'm like, I just want... And there was a painter there. That was the only thing that stopped me, I think. (laughs) There's just something about us that we're like, when someone says you can't do something, we go, oh, yeah? And when God steps onto the scene and says, I'm God, I call the shots, not you, we naturally respond by rebellion against him. The human heart is turned against God. But what we need to do, Jesus says, is trust that he is our only way of forgiveness. He is the king. And we need to put him as number one in our lives. Not in order to be saved. No, none of us can be perfect. Jesus' death in our place is is the way that we can be forgiven. Him dying and offering us his life. But we need to then recognize that he is king and not us. Jesus says, that's what it looks like to follow me. It's consistently remembering Jesus is a king. They say there's a great way to catch monkeys. I don't know if you've heard this. I've heard it, uh, so it must be true. But not everything's true. So apparently, if you put something like a, a banana or something big inside a, uh, a, a jar or through a fence, let's just go to the jar, put some cool, cool amount of nuts inside a jar, and the jar's kind of tied, and a monkey puts its hand in and grabs the nuts. It's like, whoa, I've got the nuts. Right? But then its hand's too big to get out of the jar. And, and so the monkey kind of gets stuck with there because they don't want to let go of the nuts, because I've got my nuts. And so this monkey's like, Ear! and I, I don't, they're saying, if you could understand, monkey, help, I'm stuck, but I want my nuts. Right? <laughs> and, and, and that's how monkeys kind of can get trapped, apparently. Um, but so it is with us, isn't it? We cling to so many things in life, so many things that come before us. We go, no, but this is more important to me. And I know that I'm going to die and that all the possessions in the world that I have, I won't have them anymore. But I still want to run after them. I still want to chase them. And so like crazy, distraught monkeys, we hold on, we grasp at everything in life. And we forget Jesus is the king. Jesus says if you want to gain life, you need to lose it. You need to give it up. Look at verse 36. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and let lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Let me ask you this morning, what price do you put on your own life? How much is it worth? What is so important to you that you wouldn't give it up? Is it sport? A house by the water? An overseas trip? A relationship? Career? Respect of peers? What is so important, so wonderful that you would say to Jesus, no, I'm going to put you aside because this other thing is better? What is so important, you would risk hell for. I want you to see this morning the value Jesus puts on you. You could gain the whole world, all the gold, all the oil, all the diamonds, all the Bitcoin at the moment, all the cars, the fame, the handbags, the shoes, the land, the houses. You could get everything. And all that is nothing compared to eternity, life that does not end relationship with the creator of the universe, forgiveness, knowing God forever. Oh, we're so short-sighted. We look at the things in front of us and we get amazed like a monkey in a, with its hand in a jar full of nuts going, look what I've got, I can get it. And what's on offer of us is life forever. What's stopping you today from recognizing that Jesus is the King? What is that? What's stopping you from giving every inch of your life to him? History points to the reality that he is who he claims to be. Is it pride? Is it pleasure? Is it the idea of freedom? I can live however I want. Whatever it is, that's the price you're putting on your own head. That is your God. That's what you're living for. I want to say to you today, whatever it is, you're worth more than that. God, the Son died in your place. Don't sell yourself short. Don't undervalue your soul, but recognize who Jesus is. Because we only get one chance, one life, one opportunity to live for him. So Jesus says in verse 38, and these are words for us to hear very acutely this morning. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Your response to Jesus now determines his response to you when he returns. The way you respond to him now will be the way he treats you forever. There is nothing in this world, not money, not security, not a house, a husband, a wife, children, holiday, comfortable retirement, people's approval, economic security. None of those things are worth going to hell for. They're not. And what we've been shown is God, the Son, the promised King, come and died for us. Friends, seeing Jesus truly means living for Him completely. Seeing Jesus truly means living for Him completely. So stop living for anything or anyone else. And start putting Jesus first. Keep putting Jesus first. He is the King. The question is, is He yours? Let's pray. Father God, this morning we are so thankful that you've given us your word. That we get to hear the words of Jesus and see who he is. We pray that by your spirit you would keep revealing to us the importance of Jesus. That he's the one who made the universe. That he is the promised king. And he's the one that will rule forever and that he has offered his life for ours. We ask today that as we think through how we live that you would help us by showing us what we've placed in your position, showing us what things creep into the center of our lives, and, and you'd help us to share that with one another. You'd help us to bring that to you as our God and, and to think through how we might say no to making ourselves king and yes to the sacrifice of giving up our autonomy to trust in the one who loves us more than anyone else. Lord, may you shape us in the likeness of your Son.